1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone. Today I have with me Professor Leslie Higgins, who teaches at the Department of English at York University in Toronto, Canada. She's the author of many books, most recent of which is Heterotopic World Fictions, um, Thinking Beyond Biopolitics with Wolf, Foucault, and Ondache. Um, And for this book, she joins me today to talk uh, about. uh, She co-authored this book with Dr. Marie-Christine Leps, who unfortunately cannot be with us today. Hello, Professor Higgins. How are you today? Uh, I'm very
3: fine, thanks. And it's a pleasure to be talking about the book with you.
2: It's my pleasure, too. As always, I'd like to start with um, the origins of this book. How did this book come to be? Uh, what were some initial ideas when you started writing this book? Right, well I hope
3: you don't mind a long answer. Marie-Christine um, who died in October, so this book is something that was very close for both of us but talking about it's very important for me now. We both started teaching at York at the same time in 1987 and I mention that because She specialized in literary theory, and especially Foucault, and comparative studies, and I focused on late Victorian and modernist literature. But she was invited a couple of years after that to contribute to um, a project on law and literature and asked if I'd like to work with her. And we thought that would be fun, and we decided to work on the passport, which was initially a World War I temporary measure, uh, like income tax, Um, never went away, Um, but for us the we were interested in the passport as it symbolized 20th century controversies about borders and mobility rights and citizenship. And our method was Foucauldian and because we approached the passport in terms of governmentality, that is how populations and individuals are governed. And the text, it was a wide ranging essay, but the text included Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway and Ondaatje's The English Patient. And we discovered two things. One, that there were surprising congruencies between the three writers that we really thought were worth exploring further. And the second thing we learned was how much we enjoyed working together. You know, we did the reading and the research separately, of course, but we sat together and we composed every sentence, every paragraph. Some people find that a little hard. It it was a process. So the book started there and we had our what if I can put it that way, that is a transgredient study of these unlikely but remarkably coherent trio. And we also had our why, that is we wanted to demonstrate the symmetries in the ways that they analyze power relations and violence and war and gender and the connections between what Wolf calls tyranny at home and tyranny abroad. So. We had those things, but what we didn't have was our how—that is, our method. And as you know, as anyone who does this kind of work knows, that's the hard, that's the really hard part. And that came for us in two stages. First, we wanted to compare how they use what Foucault defines as heterotopias—spaces that contest all others. How um, these particular spaces unsettle the grounds of established truths. So that was the first stage in developing the method. And the the second more complex stage concerned world literature. In the summer of 2012, Marie-Christine attended one of the four week Institute for World Literature um, uh, sessions at Harvard University. And it was transformative uh, for our work and for our university. Marie-Christine developed for our graduate program in English, uh, a diploma in world literature, the first of its kind in Canada. So within the context of world literature, we realized that the aesthetic and political projects of Wolf Foucault and Ondaatje not only made sense but come into much sharper focus. So we did our homework, we used conferences and essays, you know, to learn more about individual texts, and we worked on the book. So that's the long answer to your very good question. It was a process and it was, the idea was always to be able to work with the three of them Um, but the long process was figuring out how to do that.
2: And in part, you have answered my second question, but I think you can come back in some detail about it, which is about the title of this book, Heterotopic World Fiction. Um, And my question is, why did you feel this, a need to analyze through the concept of heterotopia for those who have uh, read Foucault, we tend to imagine that this is something very rooted in the European intellectual tradition. It is such an interesting thing. Um, Critics, as you say, in many
3: fields, you know, geographers, um, urban studies people, historians, architects, have really taken advantage of Foucault's notion of the heterotopia. Curiously, It was a concept that he worked on in 1966. We, you know, tracked how he went from an interview with architects to a series of writings and an introduction. It's a and yet, for example, he never described the prison as a heterotopia. He had this great idea and then he dropped it. Um, But it's a very malleable concept and it it includes, you know, a parental bed that children invade or it could be a garden or a cemetery or a spa or it could also be an asylum and we've discovered that all three of these writers use heterotopias um in some cases the same spaces Foucault makes a comment at one point about the ship as the heterotopia par excellence and Wolff uses the ship very predominantly in two of her novels um, the voyage out and the waves, um, and on interestingly, uses one ship, the same ship, at two stages in its lifespan, if you will. He's interested in the Oranse as an ocean liner traveling from what was then Ceylon to England. Uh, that's in Cat's Table, but he had already imagined the Oranje as this, um, you know, somewhat uh, rusted-out old relic. Um, that becomes a lab in Anil's ghost. So they're all interested in chips. But more than that, we realized through a lot of hard work that they not only feature these spaces that allow writers and readers to destabilize the grounds of established order. We argue that in fact, what they develop in their texts are what we call heterotopic processes, disposition, disruption, and dislocation Um, and we use these um, processes to compare clusters of their books so you're right a a a really profoundly interesting concept but we wanted to take the concept one step further
2: Yeah. yeah And uh, maybe I'm a very ignorant person, but I have not come across many works that put together Virginia Woolf, Michel Foucault and Michael Ondaci together. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this choice of authors and philosophers came together?
3: Well, um, as you say, <laughs> I mean, on the surface, there's nothing about the project that makes sense. Um, For many years, our working title, and before we came up with a really elegant one, our working title was Wolf Foucault Ondaatje, Go Figure. Um, And, you know, people would always say, you're doing what? And, of course, like a modernist who's working on Wolf, you know, doesn't say to themselves, ooh, now I've got to go and read, you know, um, Ondaatje, or... Canadian or post-colonial specialists don't often say to themselves, hey, doesn't Wolf also do something like this? And you know, Foucault and theory specialists might be interested in fiction, but typically not the works of Virginia Wolf. So there is this profound incongruity, and you were too polite to say that, but it's absolutely true. Um, as an aside, uh, The initial reader's reports for the book were very mixed. One one of the readers loved the book, thought it was great, and one of the readers basically said, why? So, I mean, we were really fortunate that Gayleen Tienoff, who is the series editor for Academic Studies Press, understood and supported the project. So we're interested in the three of them, not in their private lives, um, but their texts, their activism, all three of them activists in their own way, but I think it is also fair that all three of them knew or know what it is to be marginalized. And I think some of the congruencies that we find in their texts stem for that. Um, we are interested in the fact that all three of them are particularly sensitive to the politics of everyday life and to the forces that govern everyday life. And I think that it's also fair to say that they are differences in, in kind, but not focus. Sorry, it's a difference of focus.kind because you have Wolf and Anjanche analyzing what happens to disciplined bodies, if we could put it that way. Whereas Foucault is interested in the institutions and the discourses that produce those docile bodies. So what we have is a group of texts, a body of work, That allows us in a small way to look at the history of the present in terms of the 20th century's love affair with war, if I can put it that way. And that's also what profoundly they have in common um, is the need to analyze the relationship between what we would call the violence of everyday life and um, the major forces um, that not only... Produce war, but as Foucault argues, need war, um, and and how that shapes the 20th century. So that those were the the compelling reasons. I I hope uh, to explain for using the three
2: of them. Yeah, and uh, you have mentioned war. You have men, uh, mentioned violence. You have, um, in other words, mentioned also biopolitics uh, and biopoetics that you mentioned, um, which is which are the terms that you have used in the book. Would you say that these all collate in only three of these authors, or would you put down more authors in this list?
3: Oh, there would be many, many more authors. Um, I, you know, when I'm thinking about biopolitics, uh, the authors who immediately come to my mind um, include, for example, Casio Isigori, um, who not only... Um, is interested in how lives are governed, but pushes the boundaries by defining, in some of his novels, um, humanity in relation to AI. Which you know, I have no expertise there, but I think that the the potential for that analysis is huge. Um, Don DeLillo and Zadie Smith both come to mind. Um, I'm sure you would have other suggestions. I'm I'm teaching. Art Spiegelman's mouse, uh, this term, uh, in one of my courses. And I think it's it would be an excellent example of a text that demonstrates the constrictions of biopolitics and the very difficult possibilities of biopoetics. And uh, chief among the techniques of biopoetics is what Foucault, borrowing from yet another ancient text, uh, calls um, Parisia, that is dangerous truth-telling. Um, I could imagine a very different project um, about biopoetics as a response to biopolitics in the poetry of Langston Hughes, uh, Derek Walcott, W.H. Auden and Ann Carson. That would be my dream team of possibilities. Um, um, In other words, these are comparative studies. And so any any excellent combination that allowed you to think about the networks that are transcultural all transcultural and transgeneric and transhistorical and especially transnational so yes there are it would it would be wonderful to think that the book encouraged people to do other not so obvious um, but really interesting uh, comparisons
2: yeah and to analyze these three writers philosophers you have used the notion of biopolitics. For those mm-hmm. who are not familiar with the term, who, um, could you tell us um, what you mean by this term and how these writers or philosophers have understood biopolitics in their own work?
3: I'd be happy to, and you're right. we There is a fair bit of jargon for that. I'm going to blame Foucault, meaning you know, he uh, resuscitates older terms. He develops terms that seem difficult on the surface, but are so apt in terms of what they can define. Biopolitics refers to the government of life and through particular individuals, but also the general population. So it works at the individual, um, the national and the international level. It's It has gradually become the dominant mode for the exercise of power in this long 20th century across different political regimes. I mean, biopower, biopolitics is evident whether you're talking about liberal Democrat or fascist or socialist or communist governments. It's that cradle to grave shepherding of individual behaviors, always correlated to the management of the population and always imagined by the state, enacted by the state through security measures, health, education, labor, leisure, uh, pleasure, all develop so that they seem normal. And that forceful impact of biopolitics is not only now apparent everywhere for, and not just for example, the world refugee crisis, the camps that are built at borders to house people. Um, We are all aware of the way in which biopolitics functions uh, because of the pandemic. Um, with its new colonialism, and it's what we would call vaccine diplomacy, you know, differently affecting individuals and entire populations, depending on gender, race, class, and continent. So the text by all three writers provide multiple means to understand how biopolitics functions, but also demonstrates how various vectors of biopolitics, gender, which as one critic admits is the elephant in the room of world literature, Um, race, class, community, how global capitalism, imperialism, and ethnic nationalism, how they function, all of that um, uh, can be um, examined as part of biopolitics. Uh, I know it's a really broad answer. Um, To be more specific, in the first part of the book, to be thorough about it, we compare Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway Uh, Foucault's Discipline and Punish and Dante's In the Skin of the Lion. And all three of them demonstrate variously what Wolf's narrator observes in Mrs. Dalloway, that it's very, very dangerous to live even one day. So we discuss, for example, how lives become rarefied in Mrs. Dalloway, whether you're talking about a peer of the realm, a society hostess or a shell-shocked World War One veteran. Um, they're all disciplined and molded to fit patterns, so much so that they seem so apparent or almost transparent to everybody else, but strange to themselves. And then Antoche's um In the Skin of the Lion, written in the 19 in the 1980s, goes back to the exact same time period, but not elegant luncheons and society parties uh in London, the um uh, let's say the imperial city, capital city. But to Toronto, you know, the imperial outpost, um, but demonstrates the effects of all of this on class, um, especially looking at the immigrants uh, to the city, you know, who build the city's major projects. But it's bare knuckle capitalism as a war against the workers. So all three of them. That so what Foucault is theorizing, in other words, Wolf and Darche are demonstrating. Um, that would be the best way I I would put it. Um, and the last point I would make is that one of the things that we discovered was not that we would use Foucault to explain the other writers, but we discovered these, these incredible congruencies so that Wolf, you know, working 50 years before Foucault, is interested in how biopolitics, that historical density of everyday life, how it functions in novels like Night and Day and to the lighthouse and the years and between the acts. Um, so that's that's how that's how it's defined and, and that's how I'm suggesting uh, text can demonstrate, novels can demonstrate how it works. Yeah.
2: Um, coming uh, back to the book, you uh, have divided it into two parts, and the first part is biopolitics technologies of the individual, uh, where you're analyzing uh, the heterotopic critique of biopolitics as it has done by the three authors, um, just as you mentioned. Uh, you're and you're arguing that world uh, heterotopic world fiction counters
1: Slash NBN
0: 50 to get 50% off. BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's AND, not OR. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: Central to all three writers is a commitment to resistance. um, Methods of countering the forces of biopolitics as expended on people and populations. Biopoetics, which interestingly was an idea that Foucault had in a 1980 lecture, in a footnote, this was one of the fruits of Marie-Christine's um, research. Um, she went to the archive in Paris, You know, she worked for about a month and found this and came back and said, we have to use this. So bio biopoetics identifies the aesthetic and the ethical possibilities of what Foucault would call self-fashioning. That's another way, put another way, what are the methods for untying truth from relations of domination and subjectivization? And world fiction, we're suggesting, by Wolfenondace certainly, but by many others, often has as its urgent theme what we would call the strictures of nationalism. Heterotopic world fiction, because of these processes that I've mentioned of disposition and distraction and dislocation, demonstrates how resourcefully there can be alternate modes for living. These are not utopias, right? This is not this is not the fiction that says, well, you know, we'll just think differently and be happy. You know, then it sounds like a Coca-Cola commercial. Um, it has to do with imagining different plots. And by that, I mean the plots, not just the plots that we read, but the plots that we live by, how they can be imagined differently, fundamentally, heterotopic world fiction promotes critique and it does through it does so through juxtapositioning it enables what we could call effective destabilization and and in all three there's a all three emphasize the importance of the reader the reader's ethical responsibilities they write demanding texts absolutely but texts that encourage readers, to think differently
2: and to think otherwise, and this uh, leads very nicely into the theme of the biopoetics, um, which is the second part of your book, uh, and the title is biopoetics: technologies of the worldly self. And uh, between these two parts, there is also the distinction between the individual and the worldly self. Uh, and those who would be unfamiliar with Foucault, could you talk about a little what is the difference between what is an individual and what is an worldly self?
3: You ask such excellent questions, but and ones that go to the heart, not only of the critical enterprise but the the challenges of the discourse, especially the terminology. In English, "individual" is a very positive word. You know, it suggests autonomous stable persons i mean you're an individual i'm an individual aren't we special Um, but in discipline and punish foucault argues that the individual so we, we imagine that word in quotation marks is in fact the product of a carceral disciplinary society that is the individual is the person subjugated taught how to think um in ways that suggest, oh, all of this has been naturalized, institutions and discourses, and yet really attached to what academics would call the liberal humanist ruse of this private, independent agent. So that's, that's the problem with the term individual. And we, we try to analyze how individuals are, in fact, produced. Um, so the individual is the product of biopolitics and governed accordingly. But when theorizing what we call the self, Foucault uses the term soi, S-O-I. If Marie Christine were here, she would correct my pronunciation. One of the pleasures of working with her is she corrected my pronunciation for more than 30 years. Um, But soi is an impersonal category rather than a notion of autonomous uh, subjectivity. And in one of his essays in the early 1980s, Foucault suggests that the time has come for people to refuse who we are, that is, refuse the limitations and the privileges of individualization. And instead, he argues for what he calls the international citizenship of the governed. So we try and correlate this assertion with Wolf's argument in um, Three Guineas in which the narrator declares, as a woman, I have no country. As a woman, I need no country as a woman, my country is the whole world. And that idea of an international citizenship and Wolf's what she calls the society of outsiders can also be correlated to what Andache calls communities of planetary strangers. So in other words, the worldly self is not some idealized notion, but it is aware of the forces of individualization, and committed to these processes of thinking differently. So biopoetics, as I said, is about aesthetics and ethics. It is about the project of working on becoming. And and of course the question is becoming what? Um, And to say becoming other is just too uh, general and theoretical, but the idea of fabricating one's own life to oppose biopolitical normalization. Foucault was one of the the great critics of what it means to be normal in so far as normalization, all of its pressures, Um, not just conformity in a general sense, but in a much more invidious sense of, of course, what are the consequences of not being normal, which, of course, we know all about today what does it mean if normal means white male and heterosexual you know where do we go from there so biopoetics um stresses the potential for doing this hard work of not just thinking differently but becoming
2: differently and uh, my next question is as a literature student um is that you have used these terms of analysis, biopoetics and biopolitics, to analyze the work of Virginia Woolf. And uh Wolf died when Foucault would have been, I think, less than 20 years old. Yes. Um, how does um the the work of Virginia Woolf lend itself to the analysis of biotic bio? politics and I ask this because as a literature question whenever you do that you said well don't do that because that's a different time and that's a different situation and uh, I'm I'm just asking um as a literature student how um how can we use these terms in the way that it just in the way that is just also for Virginia Woolf and also for the concept that has its own trajectory
3: um your point about whether or not we are encouraged to be comparative or not is is a really good one. And um, we had two sort of pressures on our work. One was to make sure that we weren't in effect suggesting, oh, here's like the big guy theorist, and we will just you know use him to show us what the little lady actually wanted to think. We were very sensitive to not doing that. But at the same time, um, one of the things that world literature encourages is not just comparisons um, across national borders but comparisons um, in terms of what one critic calls deep time and one of the pleasures of working on the book was demonstrating for ourselves how that works. so for example, to your point um, Wolf is um, always always cited as one of the great modernists um, in terms of her narrative experiments in terms of her style. Um, but one of the pleasures for us of writing the book was demonstrating Woolf's political acuity. Um, and so the short answer is, Woolf was thinking about this 50 years before Foucault. Foucault provides the terms and, and the subtle theorizations of issues that Woolf was always ra- already wrangling with, if I can put it that way. She she also, like Foucault, produced a tremendous body of expository prose, literary criticism, essays in which she discussed not only specific texts, but her ideas about moments of being and non-being and the art of biographical writing, and always, for Wolf, uh, the blunt and subtle forces of patriarchy. So I would suggest that Wolf, as a woman, coming of age in the early 20th century, didn't need Foucault to teach her about biopolitics. Um, uh, The other thing that really sharpened Wolf's political analyses was the way that she understood relations of force. Uh, As I say, she's the one who, who makes this brilliant comment about the relationship between tyranny at home and tyranny abroad, and so Wolf's sensitivity to what it is to be a woman in patriarchy at that time, um, coupled with her her understanding of what we would now call a post-colonial perspective, which really sharpens um, how she thinks about her world and her responsibilities within it. And for Wolf, um, that is always shaped around India, what India meant within the British Empire and what and the consequences of British imperialism. So, so what I'm suggesting is that she she understands these things um, uh, long before Foucault starts theorizing them. And, and one of the key issues that um, Foucault suggests in terms of how this self-fashioning might work uh, in terms of biopoetics is the idea of Parisia. He um, resuscitates this ancient idea of dangerous truth-telling, what it means to speak truth to power. And this is something that Wolf was doing uh, brilliantly in several texts, especially in A Room of One's Own. You know, We have a narrator, a lecturer, very charming and very disarming, but utterly courageous, delivering, let's say, unpopular truths about gender and discrimination and misogyny and tyranny. And she was also one of the people, and then I'll stop because my answers are always too long. But she was also one of the people who, in the late 1920s, was starting to understand what the rise of fascism could mean and might mean. So even in A Room of One's Own, which is 1929, um, the among the most unsettling um, comments towards the end of the book is when she remarks about Mussolini. And and begins to understand, you know, what fascism could be. So, just as uh, Foucault in his writings un- um, says that he understands what force, what the the relationship between how people are governed and force, only in terms of fascism. Um, so, for both of them, that's what shapes how they understand power and it fu- its functions. Does that answer your question?
2: Yeah, it does. It absolutely okay. does. Okay. Yes. Um. Since we're almost at the end of this podcast, um, what do you hope the readers take from this book?
3: Ah, well, you know, <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that the book is a smorgasbord, but it's wide ranging. We certainly hope that readers will be patient with the book and take away from it. And a desire to read more of the other one. So, for example, the Wolf specialist who's never read on Dace might change that, or the Foucault specialist might consider Wolf and on Dace, because after all, it's Foucault who says, I write nothing but fiction. And if you think that doesn't make sense, he was talking about strategies for thinking differently about truth and how fiction allows for that. So, we're hoping that readers will want to know more about world literature and know more about how a comparative method, this transgradient method, which you find in, in critics like David Damrosh and YG Dimock, how this opens up so many possibilities. And finally, we would want people to be inspired by the way that Wolf Foucault and Andache emphasize the reader's responsibility to think differently. That is, how do you dismantle truth regimes? It starts with a very capable imagination. In in one of her last essays, Thoughts on Peace During an Air Raid, uh, Wolf says, unless we can imagine peace, there will be no peace. So we hope that readers are prompted to do all of this work by the book. And we don't work through the usual categories. You know, This isn't a book about modernism and postmodernism or French theory or British or Canadian literatures. And it's not about a teleological development among the authors we're tr- We're tracking common threads and reinscriptions and tactics, and we hope that readers would take away from the book a model for how to do that, to find unusual connections, you know, rather than the usual connections. Um, we learned more about Wolfe by comparing her works with ondaches uh, and with Foucault's than by, let's say, confining her um to um a modernist straitjacket and and similarly with on you know whose canon really deserves the most breadth possible so that's what we would hope the people would think oh look if they can do that i can do this
2: yeah and uh what are you working on right now what can we hope to read from you in the future oh well it's very
3: kind of you to want to read something else um right now to be honest because i wear Two hats. One is, as you, as I've suggested, you know, Marie-Christine and I worked on this book for more than 10 years, but we also did our own projects. Um, she, for example, did a brilliant work on Don DeLillo. Um, I work on, also work on the 19th century poet Jared Manley Hopkins and have edited his prose. And currently I'm waiting to get the reader's reports on a book that I completed last summer. It's entitled Hopkins Confessing the Flesh. And you think, oh my gosh. um, It's a Foucauldian feminist analysis of confession as a religious and cultural phenomenon. And I also consider why the confessional was a flashpoint for Victorian anti-Catholicism. So there's that. And the next project, you know, for which I only have a title and a reading list, um, it's a study of repetition. And I I wanna look at the emergence of modernist techniques by studying repetition in Hopkins, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot and Gertrude Stein, um, with a side track to um, repetition and seriality in Monet and Van Gogh. It's that amorphous, but that's what I'm working on.
2: Well, they sound like wonderful projects and I wish you the best of everything.
3: Well, thank you very much. And again, thank you for your interest in heterotopic world fiction. Um, um I really appreciate it. And it was something that we were both really looking forward to,
2: yeah and i I had and thank you for joining me. I really had a great time talking to you. Thank you. Bye-bye, bye.